Well, good morning, church. Happy October. Uh, thankfully, uh, especially for us in, the, in this gym this morning, it uh, feels like fall is finally here. So uh, if I'm new to you, uh, my name is Charles, uh, one of the pastors at our sister church in West Philly, and it's my joy this morning to minister the Word of God uh, to you. Uh, before we get into this passage, would you uh, bow with me and let's pray together. Our God and Father, we now turn to what we most need this day, every day. And that's your word that gives us life. So we open now wide our ears and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us. As I stand up here speaking to your people, may it be more than just that. May in this time, may it be you stretching out your hand to save, to strengthen, to heal, and to stir up our hearts in your ways. So have your way now in us, and we pray this in Jesus' saving name. Amen. Well, my birthday just recently passed a couple weeks ago, and with that, I've now lived the majority of my life in Philadelphia, which is significant for me because I was born and raised uh, in the Chicago area all through high school. So if you don't know my age, just do the math. Uh, If I'm new to you, I am much, much, much older than I look, okay? I know that Philly has truly become home for me because of the pride I have for my city. You know, whenever Philly gets disrespected in any way, I I take it personally. For instance, if you've ever driven up 95 North out of D.C. into Maryland, you'll notice a big slight. The road signs on 95 tell you that the next two cities coming up on your route are Baltimore and New York. As if Philly don't even exist. As if it's like some rubbish township. It's only when you get into Delaware, when you're on the doorstep and it's unavoidable, do you see Philadelphia mentioned. And it gets equal billing with Wilmington. Okay, no, no offense to any of you Delaware folk, but... That is just disrespectful, okay? (laughs) Welcome to Wilmington. Welcome to Chester. Oh, here, by the way, is Philadelphia, which, by the way, is the only city in the U.S. that has World Heritage City status because of its historical significance. You can tell I'm pretty upset about this. And I'm not alone in this gripe. There's actually a website, onmywaytophilly.com, that's trying to gather signatures to petition for more signs for Philadelphia on 95. Now, you may think this is ridiculous, but you know what? Signs matter. Signs matter. Why? Because of what they represent, because of what they anticipate, because of what they point to beyond themselves. It's not about the signs in of themselves. You don't drive on 95 and go, man, those are Beautiful signs, man. I love the way they just, the font and how they design. I love that shade of green they use. It's not about the signs in themselves. It's about what the signs point to beyond themselves. Like when these signs are prominent and anticipatory, 200 miles out, like for New York City, it points to the significance of what they point to. See, I want more signs for Philly on 95 because ours is a tremendous city. Amen? Right? A city not just to drive through, but to visit and enjoy, to settle down in, to raise a family, and to attend a gospel-centered church like Renewal. Yeah? Well, last Sunday, we saw in Acts chapter 2 the marks of the early church. And in verse 43, we were told, "...and awe came upon every soul." 
and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Remember, the apostles were given unique authority as eyewitnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection so that they could establish and lead the church. And for this monumental task, just like Jesus did in his own earthly ministry, they were given power to perform miracles, to authenticate their ministry and their message. And notice what these miracles are called. What does Luke call them? Wonders and signs. Why signs? Because it's not about these miracles in and of themselves. The apostles weren't doing these things to just show off. They weren't random displays of power, but they were very intentional things that pointed beyond themselves. These miracles were signs that anticipated, that represented, that pointed to tremendous realities. And so in our passage this morning, Acts chapter 3, we're given a dramatic example of these apostolic miracles. And I want us this morning to see in this miracle of the healing of the crippled man that this miracle is a sign that points in three directions. Okay, students, heads up, right? Or worksheet. This is a sign that points in three directions. Upward, forward, and inward. And that's going to be my three-point outline this morning. First, let's take a look at how this sign points upward. So we're told that this crippled man was more than 40 years old. Told that in chapter 4, actually. He was lame from birth. He had never known how to walk let alone jump and run. We're told he was carried day by day to the temple entrance there to beg for money, food, whatever he needed. And as the apostles Peter and John were walking into the temple uh, for prayer at the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., they see this man and they tell him to look at them. And he thinks that they're going to give him some money and Peter does not give him money. He gives him something immensely greater. He gives him his, his legs back. He gives him his life back, in a way. And how does he do it? This isn't Peter laying on his hand and praying for this crippled man and seeing if God will answer that prayer. No, this is rise up and walk on commands. And as soon as he does that, the man jumps to his feet and immediately begins to walk. You know how amazing that is? And when I was 12 years old, I had hepatitis and I was hospitalized for a month. And there would be days at a time when I didn't get out of bed. And when finally, after a stretch of days, I didn't get out of bed, I finally get out, you know, to go to the bathroom and walk. It's like I forgot how to walk. Because my legs, the muscles weren't being used, so I was wobbling around trying to get my bearings. Here's a man that was lame from birth. And he goes from lameness to leaping in an instant. What we see here is an unmistakable miracle. So as you can imagine, all the people at the temple, they're just astounded. They're just blown away as they recognize that this man was the crippled man every day at the gate, begging for money. So like, who who are these men? Probably a mix of awe and fear. And to that, Peter responds in verse 12, Why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? As As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. It is in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who's crucified only months prior, by which this man has been made healthy and strong. The hand was Peter's to raise up this lame man, but the power was completely Christ. So you know what this miracle shows? You know what this miracle points to? That Jesus who was crucified only months prior to that, did not remain dead. 
did not remain dead. You see, a dead man cannot do this sort of thing. Raise a lame person to life. The memory of a dead man, no matter how powerful he was, can't inspire others to do something like this. And the apostles and Peter and John did not have the power and authority within themselves. Because if they did, surely they would take credit for it. And they would make a name for themselves. But they readily admit, this is not of us. We'll have it within ourselves to do this. So what's the conclusion that we must come to with this unmistakable miracle? That Jesus indeed rose from the grave. He is alive and well. His miracle of healing, teaching, transforming lives did not end at his death but continues now, first through his apostles and now through his church with him as the ongoing source. You know, as we go through this book of Acts, if you're here and you're wanting to learn more about what Christianity is all about, who Jesus is, I'm so glad that you're here. And hopefully, as we go through this book, you will see it week after week very clear what Christianity is all about, who Jesus is. For those of you who are followers of Christ, the reason why we're going through this book, one of the many reasons, is we're praying that this will re-energize your desire to be open and be public about your faith. Not to be shy or intimidated by it, even though it, it can be that in our day, in our culture, but that you are public with your faith among your, amongst your neighbors, amongst your coworkers, amongst your classmates. That you're not fearful and that you will share the message of what Christianity is all about and that this book will equip you to be able to do that. You see, there are many things that sets Christianity apart from other religions and none perhaps more significant than what this miracle points to, the resurrection of Jesus. That's what these apostles made the center of their witness. What they talked about over and over again, the resurrection of Jesus. Because do you realize, other religions, they put their trust in their dead founders. Who they readily admit, finished their work in their lifetimes, and now still remain dead. You can go visit their tombs, their graves, and where they're memorialized. The Prophet Muhammad, founder of Islam. You can go visit his grave, his tombstone, where he's memorialized in the city of Medina, Saudi Arabia. Confucius, you can go visit his tombstone in his hometown, in Shandong province in China. Buddha, well, his body was cremated. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, his body is buried in his family's cemetery in Nauvoo, Illinois. But you go visit the tomb that Jesus was buried in. There's nothing to memorialize there because it is empty. And when the Bible speaks of someone's name, Because Peter healed this man in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. When the Bible speaks of someone's name, it's not just what they're called, what that person's called. It carries, that name carries everything that is true about the person. So what is the name of Jesus by which this man was healed and made strong? By faith in what name? Now in your mind you're like, uh, Jesus? No, that was not the name by which this man was healed. There are many men named Jesus, Jesus. What is the name by which this man was healed? Not just any name. Actually, the name above every name. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, at Jesus' name, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is... And this is his name. Jesus Christ is what? Lord. 
to the glory of God the Father. What is Jesus' name? Yahweh. The divine name of the God of Israel, creator of heaven and earth. Lord. This is a name that the Israelites never dared speak. Never dared write down. Why? Out of fear of violating the third commandment. What's the third commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Out of fear of disobeying that commandment, they never dared utter that name. It's this name that's given to Jesus. You see, this miracle is a sign pointing upward to the true identity of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Who is he? He is God. He is Yahweh. Now, those of you who are seeking to understand who Jesus is, perhaps the most popular answer you'll get today if you ask someone, who, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? By the way, if you're a Christian, that's, if you have someone in your life, an unbelieving friend, that's, and they're open to having spiritual conversations, that's, that's a good place to start. I mean, who do you think Jesus is? And perhaps the most popular answer you'll get in our day today, you know, amongst your coworkers, classmates, neighbors, friends, is, oh, he was a, a great historical figure, important historical figure. He was a good man, important religious teacher, good rabbi. Well, you know what? C.S. Lewis says that that answer to who Jesus is, he puts it provocative. He says that that is patronizing nonsense. Because if you take seriously what the Bible says about Jesus, what Jesus says about himself, what these apostles gave witness to about Jesus, the answer that he's just a historical figure, he was a good man, religious teacher, that's not a valid conclusion to come to. See that? He's either, as C.S. Lewis puts it, he's either a liar that we must dismiss, He's a lunatic that we should have nothing to do with. Or he is who he says he is. He is Lord at whose feet we must bow. There's no other options. Now, if you do believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, Son of the living God, Let me ask you this, just on a practical level. Does the way that you live your life, does it reflect that truth, that reality that Jesus Christ is alive and well and powerfully at work in the world? Does your life reflect that by the way that you spend time with him or you don't? By the way that you talk to him or you don't? By the way that you handle your problems in your life, in your family, when you're stressed or when you're in distress? Or do you serve Him or not? Or, functionally, is it as if Jesus is dead? As if He were no different from Muhammad, the prophet? Is that the way you're living your life? Just living in the memory of a dead person? Or are you living functionally before a God that is alive and well and powerfully at work. Now, for those of you who are leaders in this church, who are in positions where you're leading others, serving others, leading meetings, leading gatherings, gatherings, meeting up to uh, encourage, counsel people spiritually, let me ask this. When you're doing all those things in ministry, do you do it with the conviction that Jesus is the most important person present in that room for the person that you're talking to, for the people that you're leading, that they need to meet with and hear from him, not you. Or is attention all drawn to yourself? You see, you're there to set up the encounter between that person or that group of people and the God who is alive and well and powerfully at work. That's what you're there for. 
See, the reason why we gather here every Sunday, the reason why you gather in your groups throughout the week is, is not that we don't gather to commemorate the life of a dead person. If that's what we're doing, we are completely wasting our time. It is a beautiful fall day. There's many other things that we could be doing this morning. But the reason why we're here, and this is the very uh, fitting thing to do, most important thing is that we serve a God, we worship a God who is alive and well and full authority and power. And that's what makes this time mean everything. So this miracle is a sign that points upward to the true identity of Jesus. Let's move to the next point, that this is a sign pointing forward. Now, this case of this crippled man, you know, when you read these accounts of the healing of the sick and the crippled and the lame and the paralyzed and the leprous, I mean, maybe you're so used to these accounts, you just gloss over them. But when you really sit down and, and think about what's going on here, man, these are stark reminders Just how pain-filled, how even cruel our world is. Where everything is subject to brokenness, decay, and death. Where you and I are powerless to avoid and to stop everything being subject to decay and death. Even though, sadly, so many live denying that reality. I mean, this last month, I mean, how bleak and heartbreaking of a reminder this past month alone has been about this, where we've seen devastating hurricane after hurricane, hurricane, earthquake in Mexico City, where many lives have been lost, and for many, many more, now home will never be the same. And so much of this inevitable decay and death makes so much of life feel cruel and futile. And I know many of you in this room have been there. Maybe you've tasted that this past week. Feeling keenly the brokenness of this world. What does this miracle point to? That in the face of the seemingly unstoppable force of decay and death, and brokenness, Jesus has come to undo all of it. This miracle is a sign. It's an incredibly hope-giving foretaste pointing forward to the day when Jesus will bring his kingdom in fullness and he will bring comprehensive healing as far as the curse of this broken world is found. Tim Keller, he puts it this way in understanding what's the significance of these miracles we read about in the Bible that Jesus performed, that the apostles performed. He puts it like this. He says, Jesus used miraculous power to heal the sick, feed the hungry, and raise the dead. Why? We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order. That's what we're mesmerized by, right? When Jesus is walking on water, he suspends gravity. When he changes water to wine, he suspends elemental properties. But that was not the point. Whereas we think of miracles as a suspension of the natural order, Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. See, we have it flipped. We think of miracles as what's unnatural. But we've lost sight, perhaps, of the fact that it is disease and hunger and death that is unnatural. That's what's unnatural. It's not the way that God meant it to be. But just like for this man, he went from lameness to leaping. 
in the twinkling of an eye, there is a day coming when Jesus brings his kingdom in fullness and in the twinkling of an eye, he will bring restoration, healing to all things. As Peter says in verse 21 to this crowd gathered, Jesus, whom heaven must receive, that was his ascension, we saw that in Acts 1, until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Holy prophets like Isaiah. Commentators point out connection between this episode in Acts 3 and Isaiah chapter 35 as the same rare word for leap. Leaping is found in both passages. And I'm going to read a few verses from that prophecy made centuries beforehand in Isaiah 35. And I want you to hear it not with our comfortable, relatively prosperous American lives and perspective. I want you to hear it from the perspective of this lame man who up to this point had no life, no hope, no dignity, depending every day on the sad pity of others. Or better, I just think of all the lame, the crippled, the hungry, the diseased, the oppressed, the hopeless, the helpless in our world who don't get healed in this lifetime, whose lives don't get better and they feel like they have absolutely nothing in this life. Maybe you've spent time with some of those people on a mission trip or you know some people personally. You're like, what about them? What about them, God? Well, hear the hope that's promised to them in Isaiah 35. It says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. See the reference? And the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. For those of you, perhaps even this past week, you've felt cleanly, you've felt weighed down by life, by the pain, the fear, the brokenness of life. This miracle is a powerful sign that proves to you, in Jesus, the world that your heart craves the world that your heart yearns for it's coming it's coming this miracle guarantees that now this kingdom is not one that people naturally belong to It's heartbreaking that this is not going to be everyone's future reality. So that begs the question, how do you enter into this kingdom which is coming, surely, in fullness to bring restoration of all things? And that leads to my last point, that this miracle is a sign that points inward. As life-changing as this miracle is for the lame man, you do realize, hopefully, that this is not the be-all and end-all for him. Right? Why is that? Because even though this man gained his health for now, he will eventually deteriorate again and he will face death. So this miracle is a sign that points inward to our need for a deeper 
healing. A deeper healing. More than anything physical or material. We see this from Peter's sermon to everyone gathered at the temple. Just like his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, this miracle, which by the way you realize was not performed to every crippled person at that time, this miracle is a means for Peter to proclaim his ultimate message that he has to share. The message of salvation. Our commentators point out kind of the connection between this healing here in Acts 3 and Jesus' own healing of a paralytic man that you read in the Gospels. Do you remember that scene? Remember that scene? The paralytic is brought by his friends to Jesus to get healed, and they get to the house, and it's crowded, and it's packed. They can't get into the house, so what do they do? They go up to the roof, and they, there's an opening in the roof, and they start lowering this paralytic through that roof on his bed. Can you imagine that scene? And Jesus looks up, and he's like, and he sees that man's faith, and you know what he declares to him? What does he say? Son, your sins are forgiven. If you were that person, and he said that to you, how would you have responded? Um, Jesus, Jesus, thanks, but that's not why I'm here. Uh, maybe it's obvious. It's obvious to everyone else. Maybe it's not so obvious to you that I have a more immediate problem, don't you see? To which Jesus is saying, no, you don't. No, you don't. Yes, I care about your physical and material needs. Yes, I care deeply about your suffering, physical suffering, and I'll get to that. But what he's saying is that your main problem is not physical disease, is not your suffering, it's not your circumstances. Maybe you're in a season right in life right now where that's all where your focus is. But that's not your ultimate problem. Your ultimate problem is not any physical material thing. It's your sin. It's your sin. Now that's a very provocative thing to say in our day especially. And that's offensive to say. Me up here in public to say that, you to say that to anyone. But I want you to realize that that fact, that your most important problem that you need to tend to is not your suffering but your sin, that that's actually hopeful news. Don't you realize that? Why is that the case? Because think about it. Sometimes nothing can be done. You can do nothing to undo your physical disease, your suffering, to change your life circumstances. Especially when you're on your final deathbed. And by the way, even if all your physical and material problems were solved and you had perfect wealth and health and prosperity, you do realize that's still not enough. The Bible says, for what does it profit to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? But the reason why sin being your greatest problem is hopeful news is because there is a sure cure to the problem of the spiritual disease of your Sin. Healing your sin-sick soul comes through forgiveness and transformation from God. And that's what Johnny Erickson Tata, if you've heard of this woman, recently testified to. In July, she commemorated 50 years since at the age of 17, she suffered a diving accident that left her a quadriplegic, wheelchair-bound for the rest of her life. So for 50 years, she's been suffering and agonizing physically, emotionally, spiritually, in her faith, 
There's been many times when she's cried out, why, God, why? And so she was asked in July, marking 50 years since that diving accident, being wheelchair-bound, having prayed over those years for physical healing and it's never come, she was asked to write her reflections about that in an article. And this is what she had to say. She said, what a difference time makes, as well as prayer, heaven-minded friends, and deep study of God's word. All combined, I began to see there are more important things in life than walking and having use of your hands. It sounds incredible, but I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. And God has used her mightily for decades now through her ministry called Johnny and Friends to minister this spiritual healing to disabled people all over the world. And this is ultimately why Jesus came. Yes, in his earthly ministry, he healed the sick, raised the dead, fed the 5,000, but this is why he ultimately came. To heal your sin-sick soul, Jesus had to be wounded. For you and I to be raised from spiritual lameness to leaping in worship and joy with a whole new life, Jesus had to be immobilized and crippled and bearing punishment for our sin. That's what Peter was testifying to, to this crowd gathered at the temple after this healing. That's what he, he was telling this crowd. They unwittingly enabled months earlier when they denied Jesus from being released by Pilate. If you remember that event during that Passion Week. And instead they asked for who to be released. Barabbas. You see the irony of ironies here? That the guilty murderer, Barabbas, he's the one that was acquitted and released. And it was Jesus, the holy and righteous one, the author of life, as Peter says, who was condemned and killed. This most unjust exchange is the gospel. That's the gospel. You know, growing up, one thing I wish I had was siblings. I'm an only child. And a number of reasons why. For one, I spend way too much time alone, bored, um, playing with myself, trying to figure out what to do, using my imagination. I had a kind of a sad upbringing, okay? Just being alone a lot. But another reason why I wanted siblings growing up is because there was someone else to blame for wrongdoing. That I I would have someone to tattle on uh, to draw the attention away from myself. Now, if I did have a sibling, I would not be so awful as to know a wrong thing that I've done and acknowledge it and admit it and go to my parents and say, yeah, I did it. Yeah, I was in the wrong, but you know what? Why don't you punish my brother instead? Parents, if you have multiple kids and one of your kids comes up to you and says that, I mean, that's when you don't spare the rod, okay? That's when you're like, you little... Can you imagine going to God the Father and telling him, yeah, I did it. Yeah, I'm in the wrong. Yeah, I'm a sinner. But why don't you punish your own perfect son instead? Now, how's God the Father respond? That's precisely what I did. That's precisely what I did. 
This is the gospel that brings healing to sin-sick souls. When you read this account, do you see yourself in this lame man with your sin-enslaved heart, spiritually crippled from birth in a perpetually spiritually hopeless condition when spiritually you don't have the legs to stand on, you're broken, utterly helpless to save yourself where all you can do is cast yourself on Jesus and plead for him to have mercy on you. When you in repentance turn back from your sin and when you in faith lay hold of Jesus as the Savior of your sin, sick soul, you will be forgiven. You will be cleansed. You will be changed. And Christians, don't don't think I'm just talking to the non-Christians in the room. The healing that Peter promises here through repentance and faith is something you can and you should and you must experience in deeper ways. You know what's the the, the sweetest moments I've experienced uh, over the years as a pastor? As I think about it. It's at what feels like the worst moments in people's lives. And the pastors have seen many, including a number of you in this room, at what's felt like the worst moment of your life, at where you've been your most vulnerable, where sin has been exposed in your life in one way or another. Perhaps it's sin that you've hidden and harbored maybe for years. Addiction, pornography, sex outside of sacred marriage, struggling with eating, eating disorders, just a life of deception, one way out front in church, totally different elsewhere, life of just perpetual bitterness and anger, and that's wreaking havoc in your family and on others, a life of unforgiveness that you just can't let go of hurt from the past, the stuff that diseases your soul. And over the years, I've seen how the light of God, God in his kindness, he brought those things into his light. That's a terrifying thing, is it not? When the light shines and exposes the dark crevices and corners of your soul, of your hidden life. But you see, it's that light that when those sins do become exposed, that when it gets killed, when it stops from thriving, breeding, having its way, entangling you as it does when it's kept in the secret, when it's kept in the dark. But there have been those moments, perhaps, for you when you were brought to confess that sin, when you could hide it no longer, when you owned it, when you shed tears over it, when you sought Jesus' grace for it, when you turned back from it, and what did you experience when you did that? Healing. Healing. Verses 19 to 20 in our passage, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. When you've truly humbly repented, oh, how the forgiveness of God no longer remains this abstract concept, but how it becomes sweet air for your oxygen-starved soul. Oh, the forgiveness of God, how it brings me life, how I can live again. When in the midst of your guilt and your shame, a time of refreshing that you would not trade for the world. Oh, and how it came to you from the presence of the Lord when His love enveloped you and His strength empowered you to change your heart. 
tears of humiliation and regret and shame gave way to tears of gratitude, joy, and worship. And I've experienced this in my own life again and again. And I've seen as privileged as a pastor in many people's lives. I've seen this in unbelievers tasting the forgiveness of God and His refreshing in His presence when they converted to Christianity. I've seen this in young believers who had a big past, a heavy past that they were burdened by and need to be set free from. And in repenting and turning back, they experienced this. I've seen this in seasoned Christians even in pastors, recently that's been the case, who've lived far too long in a life of secret sin. When you turn back, you bring that into light. Oh, how you taste the forgiveness of God. Oh, how you're transformed and refreshment by His presence. And that's the healing that you and I need. And by the way, last Sunday, if you were here, what did we talk about in Acts chapter 2? Being devoted to biblical community. That you are in need of Christ-centered relationships where you are truly vulnerable, where you can be truly known, where you can be loved and cared for and held accountable. Why? Because that's where God designed His healing to take place. James 5.16 Therefore, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. What Peter is proclaiming here is not some nice ideas, concepts on paper. It's what we gather every Sunday for. It's why you gather in your community groups throughout the week for. The church is not a museum of saints. We don't come here to look at one another as, you know, adoring examples. The church is a hospital for sinners. You know, as the pastors come up here to preach the word, you know what we're burdened by? That every week, as Jesus is here, this is where triage This is where treatment, this is where surgery needs to happen. That's what your community group gatherings are for. Are you there just wasting your time going through some questions, sharing how your days are going? No, it's where triage, it's where treatment, it's where surgery from the perfect physician for our souls happen. And by the power of the resurrected Jesus, healing happens. You may have heard about the recent passing, maybe on social media, of this man, Nabil Qureshi. And a couple weeks ago, he died at the age of 34 after a year of battling stomach cancer. If you don't know who he is, he was raised a devout Muslim, and he converted to Christianity. And he became a protege of Ravi Zacharias, if you know who that is, a Christian author, apologist. And... Nabil Qureshi became a powerful evangelist and apologist in his own right, ministering especially to Muslims who had a particular heart, of course, for. And this is what Ravi Zacharias wrote last Sunday in an article for the Washington Post in memory of Nabil's life. And this is what he said, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, Neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. So said the Apostle Paul. And that's the future hope that we have. We believe that Nabil is now in heaven. He told me how painful it was to leave his wife, Michelle, and his young daughter, Aya. But his pain is now over. I do not mourn for him. I mourn for our broken world where so much hate and destruction abounds. We have a cancer called sin. The disease that kills the body is minor. But the disease that kills the soul 
is eternal. Nabil will want more than anything else that we carry the message of Jesus to help change the world. Only then can we understand that the sad news of Nabil's death is temporary. Now, if you're here this morning and you look to and you trust Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, as you're hearing what happened to this crippled man and what this miracle points to, upward, forward, and inward, would your heart be stirred up to value that, cherish that more than anything else you possess? And would your heart be stirred up to have more courage boldness to go public with that in your life. Not in obnoxious ways, but in genuine, winsome ways. To share that with those in your life who you walk past, who you come across every day, who are in need of that deepest of healing. Just as Peter said on that day to the crippled beggar, I have no silver or gold to give you. But what I do have, I give to you. You might not have silver or gold. You might be stressing right now financially. You don't feel financially secure. You might not feel like you have enough in your life. But what you do have is a resurrected Jesus. The healer of souls. You have him to give to others. So would your heart be stirred up? You and I might not have silver or gold, but what we do have, may we be compelled to give to those who are in need of healing. Let's bow.